All right, as you're grabbing a seat, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And verse 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, is where we're going to start today. Uh, you know, sometimes I just get, like, completely tired of the news. <laughs> like, I just can't, I can't watch the news anymore. It's, it's just bad news all the time. And so, um, on days like that, or weeks like that, or months like that, I just stop uh, reading the news, and I go in search of good news. This week, I went in search of good news. I'm going to share with you some, some good news this morning that I, I think you're going to enjoy. Okay, a few news stories that I thought were pretty fun. Uh, first, uh, Mr. Rogers. It turns out that researchers have proven that Mr. Rogers is right and that if you cheerfully greet several of your neighbors every morning, it will increase your overall well-being. And now it's proven, it's demonstrated Mr. Rogers was right. And I thought that's really a, a good story. That's a, a warm story. I enjoy that news. Uh, here's another one. Th- this is a really fun story. Uh, Mary Strand lost her diamond ring 14 years ago. She accidentally flushed it down the toilet. And this week, sanitation workers returned her ring to her. I think also they cleaned it, which is like super really good news, right? So 14 years later, flushed the ring down the toilet, disappeared. Now she got it back. And then here's a fun one. This is good news. Uh, Brenda Rivera, uh, 13 years ago, she accidentally texted a Bible verse to a complete stranger to whom she is now married and has one, two, three, four, five, six kids. Wow, isn't that amazing? That's a great story. Some of you are like reaching for your phones, and some of you are like, oh, I'll never send a text message like that again. Six, wow, pass, right? Um, Good news. I thought that that was um, pretty fun, Uh, but you know, it doesn't really change your life. It's good news. It's a fun story, but it doesn't change your life. The really, really great news that we receive, I would argue, is, is news that changes us. Uh, when Tristan and I were first married, we, we wanted to have kids, and uh, for four years, we couldn't have kids. So for four years, God said no. Forty-seven times, God said no. And uh, then on the 48th time, we got good news. A nurse called and said uh, that Tristan was pregnant. And it was, I mean, it was such good news. We just got on our knees, and we cried, and we thanked the Lord, and it changed our lives forever. Just, it changed us. It was really, really good news. So I want to ask you this morning, if you could imagine the best news that you could receive right now, what would you hear? The best news you could possibly hear. Maybe scientists have found a cure for cancer. Maybe they found a cure for your cancer. Uh, You're going to graduate on time. You're going to (laughs) graduate. That'd be good news. (laughs) You're going to get a scholarship. Get a job. Get a new job. Get a better job. Uh, she said yes. Like those are, those are all really, really good news. But I'm going to argue the best news you can possibly imagine is nothing compared to the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel actually literally means in Greek good news, but I would argue it's the best news ever because it changes everything. It changes everything about your life. Absolutely everything. And so what we're going to do uh, this semester fall, and then beginning of the spring semesters, we're going to study the book of Romans, which is Paul's deepest and clearest exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that we would, as we dig deep into the gospel, you would have just a much more profound appreciation for what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you and also what that means to you absolutely every single day in transforming your life into the image of Jesus Christ. So before we begin and dig into the text itself, let's do a little background. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. 
Really not much argument about that. Uh, Paul was raised outside of Israel. He was born in the city of Tarsus, which was a, a Roman city, but it was heavily influenced by Greek language and culture. So Paul grew up learning Greek language, exposed to Greek culture. He knew Greek literature, but he was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. So he grew up practicing Judaism, and his parents were, in fact, so religious that apparently probably early teens, they took him to Jerusalem, and they allowed him to study under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the two most famous rabbis of the day. So Paul got the best education possible, and he became zealous for the law of God, zealous for the law of Moses, so much so that as he completed his training under Gamaliel, he aligned himself with a sect called Pharisees. The Pharisees were a a group of religious leaders who viewed themselves as the most spiritual people in their community. In fact, they would probably have said they were the most spiritual people in the world. And their brand of spirituality, their brand of holiness included a lot of lists of rules and regulations, mostly negative, things you can't do and some things you can do. And they judged not only themselves, but they judged everybody else by this list of rules and regulations. And they were a group on the whole that could be described as self-righteous. Paul thought he was the best of the best of all of humanity and had earned his righteousness before God. So when this new sect began to emerge called Christianity, people who were followers of Jesus Christ, Paul felt compelled just to crush it because he saw it as blasphemy. They're worshiping Jesus as God. They're saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And so really this this anger began to well up inside of Paul, so much so that he sought permission to participate in imprisoning Christians, taking their property, and even putting them to death. One day he was given uh, letters of... uh, referral by the priests and the rabbis in Jerusalem to go to Damascus, uh, the capital of Syria, and to gather up any Jews who may be following Jesus. That is, those who were beginning to align themselves with Jesus Christ. They called themselves the way, and he was going to bring them back to Jerusalem and imprison them and have them imprisoned and tortured and maybe even killed. But on that road, Jesus himself appeared to Paul, and he said, Saul, Saul, Paul's name before it was changed. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. When you persecute my followers, you're persecuting me. I am the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I am the son of God. And Paul believed, and it changed his life. He believed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ when he met Jesus, and it changed everything about him. It changed his sense of who he was. It changed his sense of mission and purpose in life. It changed his eternity, his destiny. And he began to follow Jesus, and he began to proclaim Jesus everywhere in the Roman Empire. And he went from city to city to city, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people trusted Christ, and he helped them form into fellowships, into local churches. And then as he traveled, he would write letters back to those fellowships, or he'd write a letter ahead to a fellowship that he wanted to, to visit. Such is the case the church in Rome. Paul had never visited Rome, but what he wanted was he wanted to go to Spain and preach the gospel. And he hoped that as he was on his way to Spain, he would be able to go through Rome and visit the Roman believers and encourage them and receive encouragement from them. So he wrote a letter ahead of time, and this letter is the, the longest and the deepest and the clearest exposition that Paul ever gave of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would argue it's been one of the most influential letters that's ever been written in all of human history. It's life-changing. 
Uh, Martin Luther was actually teaching the book of Romans. He was, he was a monk, and he was a professor, and he was teaching seminary students the book of Romans. And as he was teaching the book of Romans, he realized that he didn't understand the gospel. And he's teaching others the book of Romans. As he's teaching the book of Romans, he understands what the gospel actually is, and he responds to the gospel, and he believes in Jesus Christ. And he wrote this. He said, Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, and to have gone through open doors into paradise. He said, it clicked. I understood that I didn't have to earn God's favor any longer through my own striving, but I could receive God's favor as a free gift through the work of Jesus Christ. I could be declared righteous with God through faith and faith alone in Christ alone. And it changed his life. Later, he would go on and write a commentary on the book of Romans. And in the preface, he said this, Romans is really the chief part of the New Testament. And truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. For it can never be too much or too well read or studied. And the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. In other words, Luther's saying you should memorize Romans. The whole book, all 16 chapters. It's just that fundamental and foundational. Uh, Years later, John Wesley, who would go on to found uh, Methodism, the the methodical study of the word in the Methodist church, John Wesley was actually working as a a missionary uh, to Indians in Georgia, the state of Georgia. And while he was a missionary in Georgia, he heard the preface that Martin Luther wrote to the book of Romans, and he heard the preface of Romans being read, he understood that he didn't really know what the gospel was about, and he believed in Jesus Christ from the reading of Luther's preface to the book of Romans. John Calvin would say of the book of Romans, he said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of scripture. So all scripture is inspired by God, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. Also, Romans is a really big deal. Right? So we're going to dig into what is arguably uh, the, the most important exposition of the gospel. And my prayer for us has been, I really do, like I literally just, I pray for us that as we, we open God's word, we would, we would hear from him and our, our understanding, appreciation of the gospel and its significance for our lives would deepen. And as a result, our boldness in the gospel because we understand how valuable it is, we just, we just grow exponentially through this study. So that's a little bit of background. Now uh, let's dig in. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read together. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the gospel is the best news ever. Why is that? I'm going to give you three reasons from uh, Paul's first chapter here this morning. First, because the gospel fulfills all of God's promises. Second, because the gospel exalts God's appointed son. And third, because the gospel saves everyone who believes. As a result, the gospel is absolutely the best news ever, better than anything that you've ever heard or understood. Now, let's go back to the first point. The gospel fulfills all of God's promises. Let's read verses one and two again. 
Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Which gospel? He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, uh, the gospel is not an afterthought. The gospel's not plan B. God wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve's sin. He's not surprised by any of your sins. It's not like God goes, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do to solve the problem that humanity has created? The gospel unveils to us God's promise that he would, in fact, set all things right. And he knew even before Adam and Eve had sinned that they would sin and that we would sin and that he would have to intervene to set all things right. He had a plan. Now, where did God make this promise? Well, I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, remember God created man, Adam and Eve, in his image. Right? They're kind of the pinnacle of creation. He creates the, the stars, he creates the seas, he creates the beasts in the field, birds in the sky, and then he creates uh, Adam and Eve in his image and likeness so that they can be in relationship with him, they can be in relationship with one another, they can reflect his glory, his personality throughout all of creation. And they're enjoying one another and they're enjoying God and they're laboring in the garden and it's good. It's all very, very good. And then the serpent entered and he tempted Adam and Eve to believe that they could make their life better if they lived apart from God, that they could figure out a better way to live than what God had told them. That was sin and they chose to live independently from God. As a result, a curse came upon them, the curse of sin and death. And there was alienation in their relationship with God. They were cast out of the garden and they couldn't go back in. There was alienation and friction in their relationship with one another. There was alienation in their relationship to creation. Now creation was also under a curse. And so when they worked, it wasn't always satisfying labor. It was hard labor. It was difficult labor. And it wasn't an abundance for them. And a curse also fell upon uh, the serpent. Genesis 3.15 is what's been described as the first gospel or the proto-evangelion, the first gospel statement or the first promise that God would set all things right that we had broken. Genesis 3.15. This is the Lord speaking. He says, and I will put hostility between you, that is the serpent who represented Satan. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, that is those who follow you, and her offspring, Her offspring will attack your head, and you will attack her offspring's heel. That's the first example of God's promise that he would set all things right. And how is he going to do it? He's going to do it through an offspring of Eve. He's going to do it through a man. Just as mankind has broken God's creation, God is going to send a man to restore God's creation. And so he says he will... Uh, bruise you on the head or crush your head. That is, Satan, you will be fatally defeated. You will be defeated once and for all. But in that defeating, it will also bruise his heel. It will harm him. That's a prefiguring of the cross of Jesus Christ, right? This is the first promise of the gospel that God will set all things right, that humanity is broken through a man. So who will this man be? Where, Where will he come from? Well, years later, a man was born named Abram, and God Uh, made some promises to Abram that that seed or that uh, offspring who would set all things right would not just come through Adam and Eve, but would come through uh, Abraham and Abraham's family. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house 
to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul will tell us later that the blessing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the promised son from Adam and Eve through Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was second born, but he was the son of promise. He was the son through whom the promise to set all things right would come. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. As Jacob was dying, he prophesied which of his sons would be the one through whom this chosen one would come who would set all things right. Genesis 49, verse 10. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. The nations will obey him. What is it that's coming? The opportunity to set all things right and to rule and reign over all of God's creation. Who's he going to be? He's going to be a descendant of Judah from Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, Adam, and Eve. This will be the one. Years later, David, a descendant of Judah, was given a promise by God. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord speaking to David says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your descendant after you, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we're told in Psalm 89 that his kingdom will extend over all of the earth, and there will be peace once once and for all. Mankind will be reconciled to God, and will be reconciled to one another, and will be reconciled to creation, and this is the one who will come. So the New Testament opens with the gospel or the good news that Matthew recorded, and this is where Matthew starts. Chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, he's the one. Isn't that beautiful? The record of the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Messiah, or in Hebrew, the, the anointed one, the chosen one who will set all things right, who descended from David, who descended from Abraham in a fulfillment of God's promises because God always keeps his word. It's not plan B, this is plan A. Now Paul would later write in Ephesians 3, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the plan, this is the purpose. These are God's promises. Can you trust him? Absolutely, because God always keeps his word. And so where Paul starts his argument in the book of Romans is this, uh, the gospel is the best news ever because it fulfills all of God's promises. And it reminds us that God always keeps his word and that what is most broken in your personal life and also in the world, God will set right. God is going to fix it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, gospel is the best news ever because the gospel exalts God's appointed son. Read with me in verse two. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called 
of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the gospel is about a person. So technically speaking, we don't believe in the gospel. We believe in the one who's revealed in the gospel, right? We believe in Jesus. Jesus is the focus of the gospel. And so as Paul begins this letter, he reminds us quickly, briefly, in a condensed form, who is Jesus. First, he notes, concerning his son, verse 3, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. He came in the flesh. Jesus was a real person. He was a real man. Why is that necessary? Genesis 3.15, right? God promised that everything humanity would break, he would send a man to fix. So Jesus came in human flesh, as John 1, 1 says, in, or John 1, 14, um, the word became flesh and walked among us or dwelt among us. Jesus was a real man. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and then he grew up, and he was a boy, and he was a teenager, and he became a young man, and he practiced carpentry, and he made benches, and he made tables, and he had to eat food, and he, had, he became tired, and he had to sleep, and he walked among his friends, and he preached in front of them, and he healed in front of them, and then he suffered in front of them, and he was literally crucified in front of them, and he died because he was, in fact, a man. He could die because he was a man. He was fully man. Jesus took on, at a point in time, human flesh so that he could die on our behalf. But he goes on. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, that is, the gospel concerns his son. It's focused on his son. The gospel is about his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was also declared the son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead. So this is really important theology. Remember, uh, the Son of God always existed as the Son of God for all of eternity. We, we are Trinitarian. That's really, in a sense, what sets the Christian faith apart. We believe that God is one, but he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, but one God. For all of eternity, the Son of God existed. He didn't become the Son of God. He always was the Son of God. But in a moment in time, the Son of God chose to be born into a human body, and at that point in time, he became a man. He became Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, still Son of God. But there was also a moment in time in which God demonstrated to all of the angelic host and to all of humanity that he was the chosen son, that is, God declared in the moment of Jesus' resurrection, or he proved in the moment of Jesus' resurrection that he was the son through the resurrection, because the resurrection demonstrated that Jesus had the power over sin and death, consequently the right to give life. So the resurrection proves that Jesus is the one. So notice what Paul said in this sermon in Acts chapter 17. He said, uh, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Right? So he was always the son of God, and God said when he raised him from the dead, see, <laughs> this proves it. This is the one, this is the unique one, this is the only one, this is my only begotten son who will rule and reign over all things and set all things right. He has the right to do it. How do you know? He conquered sin and death. He conquered your worst enemies. 
So I want you to imagine for a moment that you're facing a terrible enemy. And you don't have any power to fight this enemy off. The enemy is stronger, faster, brighter. Everything has just everything on you. And the enemy is, is approaching quickly. What do you need? Well, you need someone to intervene on your behalf. Or your life will be taken. Your life will be destroyed. You need a hero, right, to intervene. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Uh, there's warfare going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. And the Philistines have a great warrior. His name's Goliath. And he's super tall, super huge, very intimidating. And so all of the army of Israel is, is amassed on one side of the valley of Elah, and, and the Philistines are on the other. And Goliath comes down in the valley and says, come on, I, I, send me your strongest warrior, and I'm going to take his head off. And so what happens? All of the Israelite warriors are back in their tents, and they're shaking and cowering in fear. And then into the camp walks a little shepherd boy. He goes, hey, what's going on here, guys? <laughs> He finds his brother and says, hey, you guys want some cheese? Dad sent you some cheese. Would you like some? Hey, you know, why are you in your tents? Why are you shaking? Why are you guys, what's going on? And then he walks out. And he, oh, here's this giant taunting the armies of the living God. He goes, forget that. I'm all in. I'll fight him. His brothers are angry because they're ashamed and embarrassed that they're afraid to fight the giant. And David says, I don't care. God's got me. I'm all in. And he steps into the battlefield and he kills the giant, takes off his head. And that's a picture of our deliverance in Jesus. This completely unexpected, unassuming hero steps in to conquer a foe that seems to be unconquerable. God's son, God's eternal son, the second member of the Trinity, somehow one of the greatest mysteries in Scripture was able to to become unconquerable a baby, to take on human flesh. And he was born to peasant parents, not royalty. He was born in a, a manger, not a palace. I mean, that's not what we expected. Isaiah the prophet would say, uh, he has no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him. If you passed Jesus on the street in Jerusalem, you wouldn't turn your head. He's not Hollywood. He, he's just not what we would have expected. But we know he's the one because God raised him from the dead. And if God raised him from the dead, that proves that he has the power over sin and the consequence of sin, which is death and separation. Jesus is the one. And so the gospel that we will unpack as we work through the book of Romans will be entirely focused on the person of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. So... Why is the gospel the best news ever? First, because the gospel fulfills all of God's promises. Second, because it exalts God's appointed son. It focuses on the son. And then third, the gospel saves everyone who believes. It's that good. I want you to read the rest of the paragraph with me, beginning in verse 8 through verse 17. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine." I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, 
so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, when I was a kid, I loved to take things apart, but I wasn't great at putting them back together. I just, I love tearing stuff apart. But I tear it apart, and I couldn't get it back together, so I put it in a box, and I bring it to my dad. And my dad was really a genius at putting things back together. He'd put stuff back together and hand it back to me just in time for me to take it apart again, right? And, and, and you know, there were times, though, that I'd start taking things apart and I'd break it in the process and I'd bring it to my dad and he couldn't put it back together. And, you know, it was very disillusioning because I thought my dad was omnipotent and omniscient and he could do all things, uh, but he couldn't. There were limitations. And then I became a dad and my kids took things apart and would bring them to me and they had this expectation that I could fix it and then sometimes they'd break things and I couldn't and I could see in their eyes their disappointment in me and their disillusionment. You know, Dad, you're supposed to be able to do anything, fix anything, and I couldn't. I had limitations. What Paul says is this. The gospel demonstrates that God has no limitations. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. What is most broken in the world, God has fixed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the God who created the universe out of nothing, who just spoke, and there's nothing, and then there's everything. That's the God who can fix what's broken in your personal life and what's broken in the world. The God that, that parted the Red Seas, that's the God who can fix what's broken in your life. The God who gave manna in the wilderness and quail in the wilderness, who destroyed Israel's enemies and allowed them to go in and take the land, that's the God who has sent his son Jesus Christ to fix all things. That's the power of God demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel represents the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So that begs the question, from what do we actually need to be saved, right? If you've been around church and Bible and Bible studies and Christianity, you hear the word salvation thrown around a lot, and our minds immediately go to a, maybe a theological idea of salvation. But salvation in the Bible is a really broad term, right? It essentially means uh, to be rescued or delivered. So every time you see the word salvation, you can write in the margin, uh, rescue, deliverance. The, the question is, is this, if we unpack it, uh, from what do we need to be saved or from what do we need to be delivered. Uh, this week I did another little internet search on, on the biggest problems facing humanity. What is our problem? Just curious to know how people define our biggest problems. And, you know, not surprisingly, it was like page after page after page, like literally thousands of pages, the five worst problems facing humanity, the 10 worst problems facing humanity, the 20, you know, the 100, I mean, just list after list after list after list. I mean, it's really remarkable how many pages upon pages people are defining the worst. And, you know, it's things, climate change and uh, poverty and warfare and disease and lack of access to education and clean water. And interestingly, none of them said aliens, which I thought, well, I thought, I thought I'd find that a time or two. It didn't say aliens, but also... 
I didn't find a single page, literally a single page, that said man's separation from God. So here's the problem. If you have a disease, you go to the doctor and he misdiagnoses your disease, then he's going to give you a cure that doesn't work. The root of humanity's problem is our separation from God that started in the garden where Adam and Eve said, we can make life better without God. And that results in separation. So, from what do we need to be saved? Well, first we need to be saved from that separation or from the penalty or the consequence of sin in our lives. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Paul says, For the wages or the, the, the appropriate consequence of sin is death. And when you see death in the Bible, death doesn't mean a cessation or annihilation, death means separation. So physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Right? Death means separation. And he says the wages of sin is death. We are born into this world spiritually dead, that is, separated from God. We are, our spirit is not united with God's spirit as Adam and Eve's spirit was united with God's spirit. We're born separated. We're born dead. The wages or the consequence appropriately for sin is death. We are separated from God. What do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from the consequence of sin or that separation that's what Jesus does. He pays the price to reunite us with God. So we need to be saved from sin's penalty or the separation. We also need to be saved from sin's power. Look back just a few verses to verse 14, chapter 6. Paul says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. That is, uh, you don't have to be a slave to temptation and sin any longer. You can say no to sin. When we get into chapters 6 and 8, we'll, we'll see Paul's process for having, uh, Jesus having identified us with him and giving us his Holy Spirit, he begins to conquer the power of sin in our lives. That is called sanctification. Right? Our present salvation, Jesus continues to save us. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin. And as we listen to the voice of his Spirit, he makes us more and more and more and more like Jesus. Also, we're saved into the future because we were designed to live in perfect fellowship and harmony with God, with each other, with creation. What Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross will ultimately ring into eternity, and he will set all things right for all of eternity when he returns, and he makes all things new. Turn to chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. When did that happen? Genesis chapter 3. All right, the curse came on Adam. It came on Eve. It came on the serpent. It also came on all of creation. And so what does the creation experience? Paul's going to describe it as groaning. It says, creation was subjected to futility, not because of him who subjected it, not willingly, but because of him who subjected, subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That is, someday we will be resurrected, we will be glorified, Jesus will return, and he will remake all of the earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Right now, creation groans. There's, there's earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes, and there's drought and famine, and, and creation groans. Why? Because we brought sin into the world. And as a result, even creation came under a curse. But because of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, he has the right to set all things right. So he not only is saving us from the consequence of sin and from the power of sin, but he's saving us for the life that God designed for us for all of eternity. That's what we need to be saved from. How does Jesus do it? How does Jesus save us? Turn back to chapter 1. Read 16 and 17 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. How does it work? Well, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That word for righteous, righteousness, occurs 56 times in the book of Romans. That's way more than any other book in the New Testament or Old Testament, I would argue it's the most important word in the entire book of Romans. So wherever you see right, righteous, justice, justification, underline it, double underline it. 56 times it shows up. The root of the word means uh, uh, to, to conform to a standard, right? to be right, consistent with the standard. In moral or ethical terms, God is the standard himself. God is the standard. That means God's personality, his attributes, is God is righteous. Psalm 11. God is righteous. He's righteous in all he does. Consequently, if he is righteous in who he is, then everything he does will be right. He will always treat people right. And one of the ways he will display his rightness is in fulfilling his promise to set us right. So he will act in righteousness by displaying his saving power, and he does that through Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3, in verse 23. So notice how this works out. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So glory of God is a shorthand way of talking about the sum total of God's perfections. Righteousness of God is another way of talking about the sum total of God's perfections. What is the standard? The glory of God. What is the standard? The righteousness of God. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the standard, which is the glory of God, the perfections of God. Only God is perfect. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justified, double underline it, same root word of righteousness. That is, we are declared to be in right relationship with God as a free gift through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. You can't measure up. I can't measure up. We're not perfect. So what does God do? He doesn't just pretend that our sin doesn't exist. He punishes our sin in Jesus. He proves that he has accepted the payment of Jesus by raising Jesus from the dead. And then he declares to us 
that he will account Jesus' rightness or righteousness to our account. He will give it to us as a free gift, which means you don't have to try to earn right relationship with God any longer. God gives it to you as a gift through Jesus Christ. The theological word for that is imputation. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to your account. It's an accounting term. He credits the righteousness of Christ into your account. Now Christ's righteousness belongs to you. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that concept, Jesus declaring us righteous in Christ. But let me give you just one illustration this morning. Anybody ever met? Don't raise your hand. Don't, you don't need to raise your hand. It's not, it's an, it's a confessional moment. Probably a couple of you, or just imagine that what that would be like, right? To max out your credit card, and now uh, you got to pay your credit card, and you don't have any money to pay your credit card. And uh, pro tip, when that happens, it's not good. Um, what happens is they, the credit card company charges you a fee and interest, right? So they tag you with a fee, 25 bucks, 30 bucks, and then also like 20% interest. And so that's now added to your bill. And then when it comes around next month, if you can't pay it again, that compounds and they add another fee and they add more interest to the bigger number, math. It's a bigger note. It's going to be bigger. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And pretty soon it's just overwhelming and you're buried in credit card debt and you can't dig your way out. What do you need? Again, you, you, need, you need David and Goliath, man. You need a hero, right? So it's beautiful. It's wonderful because you got a super generous rich roommate. <laughs> I felt like some of those laughs were like uh, opposite of. But um, just imagine you got this amazing roommate who steps in and says, I got you. I'm going to pay your debt. I'm going to set you right with Citibank. Good to go. You are now in right relationship because your debt has been cleared. You are declared right. That is how salvation from the penalty of sin works, which provides us rightness with God so that he can grant us his spirit and overcome the power of sin in our life and give us the hope that we will live with God forever in a new heavens and new earth where all things are made right. How does Jesus save? Through his righteousness. Who does Jesus save? Who does Jesus save? Verse 16, chapter 1. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It's for everyone. Paul says to the Jew first, but not for the Jew alone, but to the Jew first, because the promises came to the Jews, and through the Jews the Messiah came, and so it comes to the Jew first, but also the Greek, which here what Paul is saying is in the Jewish mindset there's Jews and Gentiles, or there's Jews and Greeks. This is just shorthand for everybody. Notice what he says in verse 14. Uh, I'm under obligation both to, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. Another place he'll say, I'm under obligation to barbarians, Scythians, slaves, free man, male, female, young, old, because the gospel's for all. Why is that true? Because God made a promise. Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So what God is wanting to do is to create for himself a family from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The gospel is not the possession of the Jewish people. It's not possession of the Greek people. It's not, it's not possession of Americans or Koreans or Nigerians or Mexicans. It's, it's God's gift to every man, woman, and child. So he wants to make this family, create a family for himself. From every tribe, every tongue, every people, every language, every nation 
in his family. It's for all. And so Paul says, you know what, I'm really eager to get to Rome. I want to preach the gospel in Rome. Two reasons. One, because you're walking faithfully in the midst of a really difficult environment. Rome was a hard place to be a Christian. It was a deeply pagan place. There was all kinds of idolatry. Emperor worship was required. It was mandatory. There was uh, incredible immorality and sensuality in the culture. And Christians were mocked and ridiculed. And he said, I want to be with you because I want to encourage you and I want to be encouraged by you because you're walking faithfully in a hard place. Also, uh, you're in Rome. And that's the center of the empire. And if the gospel can take root in Rome, you know what's going to happen? It's going to go everywhere. So Paul did as he found these super strategic centers to plant the gospel so that the gospel could be taken to all of the nations. Kind of like College Station, Texas. The gospel is for everyone. One stipulation, you have to believe. Notice what he says. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God offers you a right relationship with him as a free gift, but you have to say yes. But he doesn't coerce. He doesn't force. He invites. And he invites you into relationship freely, but you have to say yes. So notice what he says earlier. Verse 5. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. The obedience of faith is the obedience which is faith. That is believe. Remember John chapter 6, Jesus was asked, what must we do to work the works of God? Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe. What is your responsibility? Respond to the gospel. Say yes to the gospel. Now, on the one hand, that's just super, super humbling because you have to admit that your worst problems and brokenness in your life you can't fix. You can't fix it. You're completely and utterly powerless to get at the root of the issue, which is your separation from God. You can't restore a relationship with God. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. And that's super humbling. Also, it's really, really freeing because you can stop trying. Or you can stop striving to earn God's acceptance and favor. Instead, you can, in humility, just say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Now, got two, uh, two ways to apply this, to respond this morning, uh, and that's this. First is uh, believe in Jesus, the one who's revealed in the gospel. Okay, this isn't just good news. This is the very best news ever, and it may be that you're like uh, Martin Luther. You may have uh, even taught Bible studies on the book of Romans, but maybe, maybe the gospel never clicked, and you, you continue just to strive to earn God's favor, to demonstrate that you're more righteous than the people around you. You're worthy of of, of having that relationship with God, and you're working, 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 and maybe it is this morning that you realize you need to stop working and actually just trust in the work of Jesus and say, yes, thank you. Let me encourage you, uh, if, if that's the case for you, and, and the Spirit's kind of breaking through and making finally the Gospels clear, this morning would be the day that you would just say yes to Jesus. Okay? Believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going to change your life change your life. Second, second application, for those of you who have already believed in, the Jesus, in Jesus, I would encourage you to boast in Jesus. Notice what he says here uh, in verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, 
If, if, I, if I said, you know, hey, Preston, I'm not ashamed of you, you'd go, uh, thanks, I guess. <laughs> were, were you thinking about being ashamed? Right? I mean, okay, that's, this is a figure of speech. What Paul is saying is, I'm proud of the gospel. Okay, when he says the negative, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what he's really saying is, I'm proud of the gospel. And Preston, I'm proud of you, right? I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the gospel, even though people are ridiculing Paul and mocking Paul for the gospel, right? This Jewish carpenter died, and now you say he rose from the dead, and somehow he takes away the sins of the world, and they ridicule Paul. He says, I'm not ashamed. I'm actually proud of the gospel. Other places he will say, I boast in the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the very best news ever, because it gets at the root of humanity's problems. So of course I'm going to tell people about it, even if they ridicule me, even if they mock me, even if they put me in prison, even if they beat me and take all of my possessions, even if they take my life, I won't quit because the gospel is the very best news ever. So I want to challenge you and encourage you as we're digging into Romans and you're getting this deeper understanding of the value of the gospel that you would boast in the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, boast in the gospel. Even if the people around you, it's not their greatest felt need, it is their deepest need. To know Jesus Christ and be reconciled through him to God and have life that lasts forever, boast in the gospel. Let's be courageous people this semester. Let's tell people about the best news ever. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for not leaving us in darkness, but showing us uh, the truth of what you've accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would just grow in the depth of our appreciation of the work finished on the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would grow in our, our confidence. I pray, Father, we grow in our, our understanding of how the gospel gives us power day to day to say no to sin and uh, yes to life and righteousness. Father, I pray this semester would be genuinely transforming for each and every one of us. We thank you for Jesus. It is in his name that we give you thanks for all things. Amen.